Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the First and Fifteen Podcast. Um, I'm Joel Pulliam, and if you're new here, the first comes from the First Amendment, which is the right to free speech, and the fifteenth comes from the Fifteenth Amendment, which is the right to vote, hence the name. And if you've been paying attention to what's been going on, you know, like if you've been watching the news, you've seen that uh, Donald Trump is under indictment in Georgia, right? Uh, RICO charges, basically racketeering for trying to uh, intimidate elected officials to overturn the votes in 2020's election. Um, he's been charged with trying to harass poll workers and people who work in elections, uh, trying to overthrow the will of voters and in particular black voters. Um, and this was part of a larger scheme, right? You have the case in D.C. with Jack Smith uh, on January 6th. And, you know, basic overview, and a lot, most Americans know this, uh, and in order to, to overturn the will of the voters and to overturn the actual electoral count, uh, Donald Trump, he led an insurrection towards the Capitol where they literally tried to take, you know, I mean, shoot, they probably would have killed some senators. I mean, it was crazy. And they tried to, you know, take the electoral box. They actually had to take the electoral, the box that held the votes for the electoral college out of the chambers, you know, to make sure no one got their hands on it. Um, I mean, it showed the flaws in our system that it was almost that easy to do. But um, it wasn't. He tried it in what Michigan. You have electors who are going to prison for trying to defraud the state. There are different states, Pennsylvania, where he tried it, Arizona, where they tried it. Uh, Georgia, definitely. Like I said, they tried to overturn the actual will of the voters. And by definition, what he tried was a coup. Right. A coup is basically an attempt to seize power, you know, by overthrowing a government. And that, you know, usually is by violence. Right. It's, it's part of the, the bigger scope of political violence. And what makes a coup different, though, than maybe like a revolution or anarchy is that a coup is really strategic. It's planned out. You know, you've heard of military coups where, you know, you have a general underneath, let's say, a monarch or, you know, a general that's underneath the president and they use the tribunal to like overturn the presidency, you know, a, a, a vice president colluding with other members of a cabinet to, to, you know, overthrow a president. Like, so those are examples of coups. Revolutions, on the other hand, are more spontaneous. And, um, and in my honest opinion, a lot of revolutions were in good faith. I'm not saying that they were always executed, right? Because I like to believe in nonviolence, you know, but that's the logical conclusion of, and I've talked about this before, of when you oppress people, the logical conclusion is violence in the end. Uh, but, you know, revolutions are more spontaneous. They're usually to overthrow a dictator, to overthrow someone who's oppressed the people. Obviously, one of the most famous examples you know, it's the Haitian Revolution, right? Uh, and it's been described as the largest and the most successful slave rebellion, uh, and especially in the West, well, in the Western Hemisphere, right? And it changes the history of chattel slavery, and it marks a, 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 a turning point in chattel slavery in the Western Hemisphere, right? Not only did they, you know, end slavery in Haiti, they ended French colonialism in Haiti itself. That's how successful it was. So that's probably like one I could think of off the top of my head. Um, you had the Romanian Revolution with Nicolae Ceausescu. 
um, where, you know, he had been a dictator there for like 25 years in 1989. Him and his wife, they're overthrown and, uh, you know, they're killed. Uh, so those are some revolutions I could think of. And again, these were spontaneous. These are movements of the people gathering together against uh, an oppressive force. Coups, on the other hand, like I said, they're usually led by the military. They're very planned out. You know, some historical ones I could think of. Francisco Franco, he uh, during the Spanish Civil War in the late 30s, he takes over as dictator of Spain. Right. Uh, and he rules, I believe, until 1975, until he finally hands over power to the to the crown and King Juan Carlos. And that's a whole big deal. Uh, it's a long story. You have Napoleon who uh, oversees a coup in France. You have Idi Amin who oversees a coup in Uganda. And that's really how a lot of dictators gain power. And America, sad to say, has been involved in quite a few coups. I mean, uh, one that comes to mind is Hawaii, right? Hawaii used to be a monarchy. A lot of people don't, you know, know that Hawaii used to be its own monarchy. And who has to interfere? America. And as a result of that coup, Hawaii becomes a territory of America and eventually a state. I mean, so, I mean, that's American history. Other ones I can think of, uh, the Congo, they interfere and they help to, to overthrow the government. Another one was in Chile. Another one, Guatemala, Iran with the Shah. But but one major one is in South Vietnam, right? In the 60s, and this is 1963, President Diem, uh, he's the president of South Vietnam, and we helped to overthrow him and to assassinate him. And the crazy part is that, you know, JFK, he is assassinated only a few weeks after that. But the crazy thing about the assassination, obviously it's terrible, the assassination of President Diem is that it, 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 it's like the first domino and it leads to a chain of events that eventually leads us to war in Vietnam, right? Uh, so we, we are not, as a country, we are not like free of guilt uh, when, it, when it comes to coups around the world. And I think even our perception of coups and political violence in general, right, uh, is very slanted. We always think of, oh, you know, coups and political violence they're reserved for third world countries and i cringe every time i hear third world world countries because i just want to say this you really shouldn't use that term to describe underdeveloped nations because third world really doesn't mean anything when it comes to money or economy or anything like that third world comes from the cold war where if a country was neither with the united states or with the soviet union they were just called third world so it doesn't actually mean underdeveloped. So I think a lot of people, obviously because of uh, bigoted thinking, they think, well, okay, coups happen and political violence and uprisings. That happens in, you know, underdeveloped, underdeveloped nations in like Africa and Asia without realizing that most of them have occurred in Europe. You know what I'm saying? Like in America, they're not immune to it either. Right. Think about the foundation of this country. Right. You think the Boston Tea Party, the Revolutionary War itself is an act of political violence and overthrowing of a government. But we see that because it's America, because it's white people, we see it as, oh, man, that is something to be proud of. That is great. Let it if if black people did that, man, y'all, they hate Nat Turner, you know, who was enslaved, destined for his children and grandchildren to be enslaved. They hated him for even uprising and, and breaking free of that because of violence. But the American Revolution, oh my God, this is it's beautiful. 
even though that is political violence. And we're not even going to talk about political violence against black people. I mean, that's been happening since the, the founding of this country. I mean, we were enslaved. Our ancestors were enslaved for, for, for multiple centuries. And then after that, we couldn't even vote for another 100 years. And we still don't have full voting you know, protections in this country. You can go back to the 1800s, right? There is a period called Reconstruction. You know, uh, after the Civil War, right, uh, Republicans, when they were good, you know, when they were the, the, the party of Lincoln and Grant and abolitionists and, you know, they're not that anymore, obviously. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when they were in control in the South, uh, you get uh, black people, uh, they gain voting rights, right? You get, you have black governors, black senators, um, black congressmen, you know, black mayors, like it transforms the South. But, you know, obviously the racist people in the South, they could not have that. And so you start to see uh, acts of political violence, right? Um, one that comes to mind is the election massacre of 1874, right? In the state of Alabama, freedmen, you know, newly freed, enslaved, formerly enslaved Africans. Uh, they had been electing Republican candidates, like I said, right? Uh, the, the representation, it looked vastly different than what it had 10 years ago. And so there was this organization called the White League. And you could kind of think of them as the brother of the Klan, right? But this is more like paramilitary, right? It's like a militia. And they attacked black Republicans at the polls and they kill multiple black people all in the name of, of, of preserving white power right and eventually the white league you know it, it dissolves into like local militias and then even some of them into the national guard and you know that that can be a whole nother conversation about you know the history of racism in the military but we don't necessarily have time in this podcast to cover it uh so yeah that's what happens and another one uh in my in, the state I grew up in, South Carolina, right? In Aiken, South Carolina, there's the, the Ellentown Massacre. And so the run-up to this election, right, 1876, if I think on the last episode, I believe, uh, I talked about between uh, Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden and, you know, the, the, the dirty deal they did underneath the table to you know, remove Republican soldiers from the South and all that, right? So 1876 is a huge election. So in South Carolina, you know, the racist white people who were then Democrats, you know, again, the parties were different back then. Uh, they're not having it. And so in the run-up to the election, these, uh, they're called white rifle clubs. That sounds familiar, right? right? White rifle clubs. Sounds like the NRA today. Um, they set out to... I mean, to kill black people, um, they go to churches, they go to uh, people working in the fields. There's even like, I believe, a state senator that's shot while he's praying, begging for mercy. Think about it. In the house of God, this man, is he's begging for mercy and he still gets shot and killed. And, and this massacre is, is part of a larger movement by white supremacists in South Carolina in 1876, you know, uh, a movement of political violence and domestic terrorism against black voters you know that includes like the Hamburg massacre who is led by you know one Benjamin Tillman who becomes the eventual governor and, and you know long-serving senator from the state of South Carolina and for God knows what reason that man's statue is still 
like on the premises of the state house in Columbia. You know, I don't even, I, I, I can't even, that's America for you. But there's one event in, in post-reconstruction that stands out from all the rest. I mean, these are all horrible instances, right? You remember how I talked about earlier the definition of what a coup was and what makes it different from revolutions? You know, coups, they are strategic. They're planned out. They're not sporadic. And they overturn already established governments. And why I wanted to go back to that was because there's only been one successful coup. You know, January 6th, Donald Trump tried to become the second one. There's only been one successful coup in American history. And a lot of people don't talk about this. Um, It was called the Wilmington Massacre, you know, Wilmington, North Carolina. And this is, again, post-Reconstruction. And it takes place in 1898. Uh, if If you go back to 1898 in Wilmington, you know, again, it's after Reconstruction. For the most part, in the South, the Repo- Republicans have left and, you know, the white supremacists have taken over. And But Wilmington kind of stands out because it's still integrated, right? They're, they're black police officers, black firemen, and three of the ten aldermen in the city, they were black. And, and aldermen basically, like, think city council, um, people who are elected like a board of a city. Three of those ten aldermen. They were black, so there was black representation everywhere in Wilmington. Uh, shoot, it was even home to maybe the only black newspaper, uh, the Daily Record. Uh, and that's going to, we're going to talk about the Daily Record a little later in this story. But uh, the white supremacists in North Carolina, they were not having it. And especially in Wilmington, they were not having any of that progress. You know, they were ex-Confederate soldiers, you know, people who had fought, I mean, former slave owners and quote unquote, they wanted to end the Negro domination. And so what they did and what a lot of people do in American history, they attached the plan was to attach themselves to stories or plant stories that they knew would uh, inflame white people that would stoke anger and racism within white people. You know, you see it today with, you know, Republicans trying to attach themselves to CRT or whatever, you know, that they, they try to stoke those flames of racism. And so one of the ways they did it was, remember how I talked about the Daily Record, uh, the man who was over, Alex Manley, he wrote an editorial. And in the editorial, he was describing the hypocrisy of white people calling black men brutes when white men have been, I mean, it's true. They've been the most violent in this country. They've been the ones who who raped black women and girls. They've been the ones who uh, hung up black men from trees. They're the ones who've lynched, you know what I'm saying, mutilated, terrorized people. I mean, he even added some, you know, he said that even some of the relations between black men and white women were consensual. And my God, that that pissed white people off. I mean, the whole thing. But that was just like, that took it over the top. You know, this, again, white people were angry. I mean, the outrage was crazy. And and there was a, a former Confederate colonel, his name was Alfred Waddle, and he gave a speech where he said he would choke the Cape Fear with carcasses if necessary to keep black people from voting. 
and, and crazy part is even with all of this and the intimidation and 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 the rallies, the racist rallies on election day or after election day, black people still held the power in Wilmington. Now, after that, there were, you know, 800 white citizens and they were led by, you know, the racist general uh, and they created a white declaration of independence. I mean, I would argue that, you know, it's the second white declaration of independence. But again, that's an argument for another day. And they went and burned down. Remember, I told you that Wilmington had the first black, you know, newspaper probably in America, black ran newspaper. They burned that newspaper to the ground. And eventually, you know, you have white attacks on black people and black people rightfully so defended themselves against a, a white mob. And in the midst of the, the commotion, there was a shot that went off. And then someone said a white man's been killed, even though there was no evidence. And after that, it was brutal. You know, all hell broke loose. Uh, you had uh, up to 300 people, 300 black people killed by white mobs. Um killing which whatever black person they saw they killed um thousands over 2,000 black people fled the city of Wilmington and you know a lot of times like with Tulsa and everything we call things riots riots are two-sided this was a massacre hundreds of black people were massacred and thousands had to leave and the goal was chaos and the white supremacists got exactly what they wanted uh what eventually happens is that the aldermen, they're replaced, uh, they're thrown out and, you know, replaced by white supremacists. And again, the Democratic Party was different back then. Uh, the parties have kind of switched. The Democrats, you know, they get into power, they're aldermen, and they handpick a new mayor. And guess who that mayor happens to be? The one Alfred Waddell, the racist Confederate former colonel. He becomes the new mayor of Wilmington. That's crazy. That man, that man overthrew a government and, you know, by chance, he was handpicked by everybody else to become the new leader. Uh, eventually, the 1900 North Carolina legislator, they stripped black people of the right to vote. And you again, you don't get until the mid 60s that black people in North Carolina have, you know, the full right to vote and to use their civic voice. And, and to this day, it remains because Donald Trump was unsuccessful. The Wilmington Massacre remains the only successful coup in American history. But it also shows that it can happen in this country. Right? And let's be honest. If it had not been that, you know, Reconstruction ends and there's no protection for black people in the South, there would have been more Wilmingtons. But what happens is that white people just control everything in the South for a good almost 100 years. And so there's no need for coups. But, you know, Donald Trump comes along and he has a plan and it's strategic. It's not sporadic. It's not, you know, out of thin air. He, this is his plan to overturn an election. And you saw how, again, how close he came on January 6th to overthrowing the will of voters. And again, while the occurrence of a coup is rare in America, it does fall in line with the, the time-honored tradition of of political violence especially against black people against marginalized people in this country so i'm not gonna let america off the hook just because it hasn't had a lot of coups or it's only had one coup only uh, uh hundreds of years 
of, of white domestic terrorism and slavery and suppression would even set the conditions for, you know, an attempted coup. So, like, when I hear a lot of white people are just, you know, the Americans, they say, like, oh, my God, you know, January 6th, I didn't believe. While, again, it's rare. Those seeds have been sown in this country since its inception. It is not rare for political violence or for people to thwart the, the, the political voices of black people. Those hundreds of years of oppression, of suppression and terrorism, again, they set those conditions to where someone like Trump even thinks that's, that's possible. To even think that's an option, he thought it would work because it almost did because he knows the history of this country. And he almost got away with it. So if you're listening, I want you to ask yourself, what type of country do we live in where Donald Trump even thought a January 6th could even work? Better yet, what type of country do we live in to where it was minutes away from actually working and from him overturning the will of the voters? I want you to ask yourself, what type of country do we live in to where black voices, whether in Georgia and Pennsylvania or Michigan, wherever in America, for hundreds of years, they can be silenced through voter intimidation, through domestic terrorism. What type of country is that? Because unless we can answer those questions, the next coup, it just might work. So with that, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, I don't take it for granted when people listen to me on a podcast or wherever. Um, and if you could, please subscribe because we're trying to reach as many people as possible and speak up for marginalized people, you know, really just trying to amplify voices of people, especially black people and other marginalized groups who aren't heard from in this country. So if you could, please subscribe and share. And, uh, you know, you can uh, follow me on social media. You know, it's Joel underscore Pulliam, Twitter, threads, Instagram. You know, you don't have to follow me. I just wanted to put that out there because I love talking to people about, you know, civics and politics and just engaging people you know, the advocacy and all of that. So, you know, reach out. Um, and I'll leave you with this because I always say it. There's nothing wrong with being upset because passion only means one thing, that you're still alive. God bless.